So right after I came to Christ as a brand new Christian, I went on my first mission trip. I was all pumped. We went down to Mexico. We're there for, I think, 10 days, a week, 10 days. And then we were, we were driving back to L.A. And I don't know what you're assuming I mean by that, but L.A., everybody knows, stands for Lower Alabama. That's where I'm from. And so we're driving along the Gulf Coast. We stop in New Orleans to spend the night. And there, our, our, this missions team had arranged for some church to house us. So we were staying in different people's homes. And a guy that was on the, t- the team I'd gotten to know a little bit, he and I were assigned to particular houses. couple, their kids had left for college. They had two sons. Those two sons had a bedroom with two twin beds. So we were in it together. It was uh, bedtime. We're, we're in bed. And I'm about to just go, just tank, go to sleep. And and uh, all of a sudden, he turns on the light and starts reading his Bible. He said, I just need to have some, some quiet time. And I thought, oh, okay, that's what I need to do. So I, I got my Bible out, had to find it in my luggage, uh, but I found it. And so I began to read. And then he prayed after that. He didn't pray out loud, but he prayed. He knelt down beside his bed on the other side of the bed and prayed. And I thought, that's probably a good idea. I should do that too. So, but I'm not going to do it right now because he'll think I'm doing it because he did it. So I waited till he was done. Then I... I needed to read a little bit more, you know, just to read more than he did. And then I, after I was done, I knelt down beside my bed and I began to pray. Next thing I know, I know this, I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you, uh, but I fell asleep while I was praying. I mean, it was so comfortable. I mean, these cushy blanket, my head's on it, you know, I'm putting my hands there. So it's not happened to you, but maybe a friend of yours fell asleep praying. Next thing I know, he is shaking me, his hands on my shoulder, Matt, Matt. And I'm thinking, oh man, I can't let him know I'd fallen asleep. So I said, yeah, 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 just, and I didn't even look up. I I just said, yeah, yeah, I've got about three more things I need to pray about. (laughs) He said, man, it is four o'clock in the morning. You've been asleep there all night. (laughs) I was outed. I was exposed. I was just doing a religious thing. Nothing wrong with getting in the Word and praying, obviously, but the reason I was doing it was for religious purposes, not relationship purposes. And you're thinking, I'm not sure what that means. We'll be talking about it. But first, let me set the, the overall context. We're picking back up with a series that we're uh, going through, doing through the Gospel of John, taking a journey through John's Gospel. We're calling it Awaken. Because that is Christ's agenda in your life, in every human's being life, to awaken us from the dead. All of us have hearts that are beating and lungs that are breathing, but John in his gospel, his three epistles in Revelation, uses the word that we translate life about 71 times, only about 15 are referring to heart beating, lung breathing life, bios. The others are zoe, it's this life of the gospel. The agenda of Jesus was not to get you and me to become religious, but to awaken us from the dead regarding our humanity that is intended to be to God's glory in all of life. It's not to get us into church, but to get us into a relationship with Him to bring us to life, which is why John says, this is why I wrote my gospel. And so this is review for those of you, I'll do it real quick. Some of you haven't been here, but some of you started coming at Easter, and so this will catch you up. 
When you read a book, there's the beginning of the book. We went to the end of it first. At the end of it, John says, this is why I've written my gospel, John 20, 31, that you, I've written these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. A lot of people say, okay, I get that. It's what I expect from Christianity, but that's part A of why he wrote it. Part B of why he wrote it is what many people miss. He says, and that by believing, you may have on a daily basis, not just at church, but at business meetings, at ball games, in family rooms, that you may have life in His name. Because it's what he had heard from Jesus. It's what he had picked up on. His buddy Peter, one time, Jesus said, Jesus, we can't go anywhere else. You alone have the words of life. What was most unique to these disciples is how Jesus not was this brilliant religious leader, but he was the first fully alive man to walk in the face of this planet since Adam and Eve before the fall. That's why Jesus in John 10.10 10 says, I've come, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that you might have life, have it to the full. So that's why we're calling this Awaken. And we're, we went through chapter one, now we're in the middle of chapter two. Before we get there, I want to do a very quick test. Actually, I'm not going to test you. You guys remember the ABCs of being fully alive? Okay. I'm not going to test you, but just that's a warning. Could be a pop quiz coming up. But if you're new here, what's it look like to be fully alive? We went through this. It means to live with a sense of awe and embrace my brokenness and the hope of the gospel and creativity as a part of my life. Depth, fully alive people are deep people, thoughtful people. They get in the Word. There's an engagement with the people around them, the culture around them to be life-giving. There's fellowship with one another. There's a generosity of time, abilities, and finances. Hearts are engaged. It's not just going through the motions, but we live with passion. But what is I? Intimacy. Intimacy with the Father. We'll come back to that. And then J, those 10, this journey on a daily basis unpacking the story. The intimacy, a key verse to understand with, with this fully alive looking like intimacy with the Father is based on John chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. And I want you to grasp this. This is going to be the backdrop to this passage we're going to look at today. Jesus defines eternal life. He says, Father, this is the night before he's crucified. He says, Father, the hour's come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you, for you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you've given him. That's his agenda. People think that's heaven. It's not synonymous with heaven. We'll experience eternal life in heaven in an undiluted, undeterred way, no longer hampered by fallen bodies in a fallen world. But eternal life is different from heaven. It's experienced there. But here's what eternal life is. He says, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Eternal life is being restored into an intimate relationship with the Father. Eternal life is being restored into an intimate relationship with the Father in all of life. That's the backdrop. Now turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2 is an instance that took place in Jesus' life in the temple courts. Now, I want you to see a picture of the first century temple, a photograph. And it really is a photograph, but it's not the kind of photograph that you would think, let's bring that up right now. Uh, you say, I didn't know they had photographs back in the first century. Uh, this is actually a model. I've been to Jerusalem several times, and there is a a model you can walk through, it's the scale is 1 to 50, so it's not tiny, it's pretty large, and you walk through the city as best as archaeologists can tell about the first century Jerusalem. But what's most accurate is the temple. 
because the foundation, the temple was described in detail in the Old Testament. Archaeological excavations reveal that. You see the walls on the side. The Wailing Wall actually is the upper part of that that wasn't toppled. A lot of it is now underneath the, the walls are obscured by rubble. But I want you to see the temple in the middle. This is a temple that Herod built. Covers 34 acres, the whole temple mount there covers 34 acres. Herod took almost a half century to rebuild it, right? From about 64 AD up to just before what we know as zero AD, right? When, when Jesus came, it exceeded the glory of Solomon's temple, but it was to the specifications of the Old Testament, perfectly, gloriously in a lot of ways. There's the temple in the middle, but I want you to see, see the two courtyards on either side. Okay, thank you. Immense, that's 34 acres that you're looking at, nothing small. But I want you to remember this. The two courtyards are called the court of the Gentiles. Got it? That's where this instance in Jesus' life and ministry takes place in the court of the Gentiles. The temple courts is what they were called. John chapter 2, verse 13. By the way, if you don't own a Bible, afterwards pick up one as our gift to you in the welcome desk. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves. Now, they were doing that. They were selling because of the sacrificial system. What would happen in the temple? Jews would go in and they would make sacrifice, transferring their sins to an animal, and then according to their income. Very wealthy people, it might be cattle or sheep, but, and then those, that animal would be killed and their, their sins would be absolved. It was a, a system that was to be a precursor to Jesus. People didn't realize that, but the, the Scriptures were talking about it. Jesus came to do the ultimate sacrifice. Well, all of that should have been sold outside. But now the marketplace had come inside. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Think pawn shop. High interest. So he made a whip out of cords. Just wanted to let that sit in. This is little Jesus, meek and mild. This will blow your perceptions of Jesus out of the water. We think he's a guy who has a perm and always talks in a sing-song voice and avoids conflict. He made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Oh, by the way, Malachi and, and, and Zephaniah and Zechariah, they talk about the Messiah returning to the temple. The sign's there, but it's not the sign they were wanting. Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, are you kidding? It's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. And now while he was in Jerusalem, at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. 
But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not, did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Why was Jesus so angry? Now, some people get from this text, well, you're not supposed to sell anything in church. You know, bookstores, shouldn't have bookstore because money is not the context of this. It's something that goes far deeper than simply people buying a t-shirt in the foyer. Why was Jesus so passionate, so angry? What was happening was at the epicenter of our sin, at the epicenter of His purpose in coming. Why did you come to church today? Anybody here, don't raise your hand, but anybody here say this morning, hey, we haven't been to church in a while, we better go. Why do we do that? There's something that all of us get drawn into that's dangerous, and it's what Jesus was going after. The anger was how people were taking what was meant to bridge sinful men and women to a holy God and restoring them to relationship. The sacrificial system, nothing about a blood of a, the blood of a goat or a, a dove or anything would re- unite somebody to the Father, but it's, it's the symbolism of people giving people something tangible to look to and looking forward to what Jesus was going to do. What Jesus was about was bringing life back to the cosmos and principle or His broken dead image bearers summoning us back to life, Yes? What is the essence of that life? John 17, 3. Intimacy. Relationship. And what Jesus was doing was coming in and exposing something we all do. We tend to because it's a little bit easier and the enemy deceives us. We opt for religiosity over relationship. The enemy could care less how religious you become. In fact, the more religious you become, better off because it distracts us from the true purpose of the gospel. So here's a question I want you to ask yourself. I'm asking myself this as well. Predominantly, am I merely practicing religiosity or am I pursuing an intimate relationship with Jesus? All of us, a little of both, but it's going to be predominantly one or the other. Why did you come to church this morning? Was it for relationship or religiosity? Was it to do the church thing or gather with some called out men and women and become a little bit more intimate with with Jesus? I got to ask myself that. I got one of the most dangerous jobs in the world, and that is doing church for a living. And that religiosity thing is always there. In this passage, this, this, this instance, this story in Jesus' life and journey, what he was so passionate about is he saw religiosity overshadowing relationship. 
And my answer to this question determines so much about my life and so many areas it has an impact. Let me give you four. Uh, it, it, it changes, it impacts how I approach Christianity, how I approach church, how I approach other people, how I approach God. There are many more, but those are four we're going to look at today. So your answer to that question, my answer, am I pursuing a relationship or am I practicing religiosity? My answer to that, not just what I say, but what's real about me, impacts those four areas. Uh, if, if, I'm, if I'm practicing religiosity, if that's my priority, here's what happens. My approach to Christianity is one of being external. I see Christianity as only what you do on the outside. My posture towards church, I become more of a consumer than anything else. I, towards other people, I become more calloused. And when it comes to God, I have a low view of God and therefore works and earning my way to God is, is everything. Now, to give you an image of what that religiosity looks like, some of you have seen one of these fairly recently. Others of you haven't seen one in a while. Gumballs. We've got enough for everyone. Vending machines, transactional instruments. You come to it, you do something, you say, okay, I'm going to give some money, and then you got yourself what you were wanting. Religiosity sucks us into a transactional approach to God where we do the right things, we go to church. We read the Bible and pray. We want to make sure other people see it. And we get what we want. But it's under our control. Unpack it a little bit more, one gumball at a time here. Let's go back to that external. When I'm doing this, when I'm approaching, saying, okay, I'm going to do all of these different religious things, and then maybe God will do this for me. what that does is it moves me into an external approach to Christianity that it's just about going through the motions. Do you know what the most popular at, uh, uh, clothing style, uh, the clothing industry is, most popular segment in our clothing industry? It's over $100 billion. They call it athleisure wear. Athletic leisure wear. You know, the, run, the yoga pants, running pants, all the activity. What's what's phenomenal, though, is that the majority of people that are buying this this athleisure wear, they don't work out. I mean, they did a study of about six six years, and yoga clothing uh, was seven to eight times ahead of the number of people that were taking up yoga. People, they, they, they don't want to do the exercise, they just want to look like they're doing the exercise. So, you, you, don't, you, you don't do all this exercise, you just try to look like the athlete. That's what I was doing that night in New Orleans. I was just going through the motions. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 23, He said to the religious leaders, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! 
You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Stop just paying attention to the externals and so that other people are, 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 getting, are getting the idea and an image of you that's not… A, he said, there's some internal things that need to happen. So that pursuit of religion, practice of religiosity, it, it's external in term, it, it changes my view of Christianity being one of just going through the motions, but also regarding church, I become a consumer. Hey, yeah, let's, let's go church. And uh, let's see if they give me what I want here today. I, a couple of weeks ago, went into a restaurant. I'd just flown in, flown in to a place. Uh, you know, the, some of these restaurants have the vestibule, and in the vestibule you'll have some gum, machi- gum machines, gumball machines. I, op- I heard it outside, and I'm thinking, man, something's going on. I opened the door. There's a number of people. There's a crowded restaurant. It's a key time. This kid was absolutely screaming. I had to slow down enough because of all the people that were going into the restaurant and coming out, so I was there long enough to figure out why he was screaming. Mom had given him a quarter, and he had gotten a gumball, and he had gotten a color that he did not like. He did not get the color he wanted, and he was raising holy cane. I had been on the plane and watched a movie called Bohemian Rhapsody, a phenomenal movie about the, the band Queen, and the, the song, Another One Bites the Dust, was on my mind. And I looked at this little guy and said, another one bites the dust. Another consumer bites the dust. That's an American. We whine and scream because we didn't get what I want. And the reason I said another one bites the dust is because his mother caved. Okay, here, here, here. And that's when I said another one bites the dust. Are you kidding me? What? But that, that transfers into our church. Why don't you come to church today? All right, let's see if the redhead will give me a red gumball. The redhead doesn't give me a red gumball. What in the world? It's orange. It's blue. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said something very pointed. Verse 13, he says, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to what? Leads to what? Life. Life of the gospel? Beautiful. Powerful. Life-giving. But there's a specific path. And it's not, hey, Jesus, give me what I want. It's Jesus, I want to be who you want me to be. And He said, only if you find it. It's dangerous stuff, this religiosity. Caters to our pride and our self-absorption. It's about be doing all of these things, and that way I get God to do for me what I want. This practice of religiosity will change my view of other people as well. Religious people are not automatically going to be caring for other people. In fact, oftentimes religious people will be less caring than others. Some of the meanest people I've ever met, some of the most selfish people I've ever met are religious people. So they become calloused. 
They're all about doing this church religious thing. You know, if you, did you see the article this week about Mount Everest and the amount of trash? They're, they're, having to, they're saying an immense amount of trash needs to be cleaned up over from decades of climbing expeditions. But one of the most sobering things, and it is that the number of dead bodies that they've started discovering. People that die on an expedition so high and then a storm comes and they get buried. And I've read a num- numerous ex- Everest expedition journals and memoirs. Uh, several are chilling because it's happened numerous times where climbers are so intent on their goal of getting to the summit or getting down that they will pass other climbers who are injured, lacking oxygen, and they will not assist them, and they leave them to die. And I am way too close to that kind of person where I get so consumed with my religiosity, I don't have time to actually be life-giving to the people around me. I don't know if you've ever heard of a phrase, Good Samaritan. It comes from Jesus in Luke 10 where he describes to convey this, this guy is injured, he's attacked, and two religious guys come along, and they're too calloused, they're too busy, they ignore him. The Samaritan comes along, a despised guy to the religious people. He's the one that pays attention. Merely practicing religiosity also cultivates a low view of God that's based on works. Low view of God, by that I mean, you know, we view God as just a little bit taller, a little bit stronger, a little bit older, a little bit smarter. And actually, we, we can bridge the gap between God and us by our behavior. If we're good in the way that we define good, Sometimes it's real weird legalistic stuff, but yeah, I, I can be okay. And so I, I will do my little, my little religious thing and I'll, okay, God, I've done this. Now you gotta, you gotta do it. And all of a sudden we've, we move into a God we want, not the God who is. And the God who is, Isaiah 57, 15, he's high and exalted. For thus says the high and exalted one whose name is holy and who lives forever. He says, I dwell in a high and holy place. Bring it up, Isaiah 57, 15. But I will also dwell with those who are lowly of spirit and contrite of heart. And I'll do it to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. This is not religious people. Religious people are proud. Hey, I did all this. I put all my religious coins in there and God just better be giving me what I want, which is why so often religious people get really upset when bad things happen in their life. The reason Jesus was so angry is that what was going on in the temple was a transactional disease. Because religiosity is transactional. I'll scratch your back, God, if you scratch mine. Jesus came to give us life, and to give us life is a relational calling. If if this is the image I want you to have for religiosity in your mind, I also want to give you an image of what pursuing a relationship looks like. 
There's something powerful about eating together. And in Revelation 3, verse 20, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever hears my voice, receives my word, needs to open the door. And if they will, I will come in and I will eat with them. What's that look like? What are the results of that? That intimate relationship. All four of those categories are drastically different. When I'm pursuing a relationship, an intimate relationship with Jesus, my view of Christianity has changed. It becomes more about what's going on on the inside. It's internal. There's that aspect of, of, of Jesus where he says, listen, uh, these people in Matthew chapter 15, he actually points it out. He says, these people worship me. He's quoting from the prophet in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8 and 9. He says, these people, they honor me with their lips. Look at verse 8. But their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain as a result. Their teachings are merely human rules. They're all about the externals. They're not about an internal transformation. What was Jesus doing cleaning the temple? He was preparing the way. Actually, Jesus was preparing the temple for a change of address. The temple symbolized the presence of God with His people. People went to the temple to relate with God. And Jesus was saying, I'm the temple. I'm about to change the address of God and enable every person. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you're a temple. If you're in, in, in Christ, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Where does that temple go? to business meetings, to golf games, to funerals, to appointments with your accountant, to parties. All of life can be lived in the temple in relating with Him. Because it's, it's a result of an inner transformation. When I'm pursuing a relationship, it's not just my approach to Christianity is different, becoming more internal, and then the, yes, you can see it externally, but it starts with an internal transformation. But how about church? Church moves from a transactional, consumeristic approach to realizing I'm here because I'm called. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, verse 10. But you are a chosen people. But you, on the count of three, I want you to say your name. One, two, three. Okay, there's more people here than that. Let's try it one more time. I know I sprung it on you. Count of three, and it, it's hard to remember the name, but uh, you've got it now. You had the preparation. Your name, right at the count of three. One, two, three. You enter that name into this. You, your name, you're, you're part of a chosen people. He picked you, he called you, he called you. A guy came up to me at Easter in tears. Hadn't been to church in a long time. And one of the things we talked about is the significance that comes to a human being from being called by the living God. 
called my name. He says, you're a holy nation. You're people belonging to God that you may declare the praises. Not that you may be do the religious things, but that you may come together, declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've been invited to the table and you've received mercy. And you said, but what about my sin? He says, you know what? I've taken care of that. I want you to come and I want to relate with you. I've called you. Church, the English word comes from the Greek word ekklesia. The root of that is kaleo or kalein. It means to call. What's significant about this group of people? It is not that we're a very impressive group of religious people doing our duty, and we just happen to have a lot more people than a lot of other churches, and there we can say, but we're all coming to do the gumball machine. No, the unique part about who we are as a church is that we are men and women from all walks of life who have been called out of darkness into light, out of death into life, and we gather together as they ecclesia. There's this group of called men and women, not to come have some holy huddle, but to come celebrate the grace of God that allows us to together come and have communion with Him. It's an amazing privilege, and we're not saying no one else. We say we got something special here, and we want other to be people, other people to be a part. And so, how's it this pursuit of relationship? impact my posture towards others, I become caring instead of calloused. And I realize it's not just about me and Jesus. It's about, you know what, this is so special. I want you to participate in it. When's the last time you invited anyone to church? The reason I'm asking that is I really want a sense of guilt in this room. I just want to promote it. <laughs> of course not. It's a thermometer. If this relationship is happening, I want other people to experience it. Would you come and sit at this table? We're a bunch of called out people. We haven't earned our way. We just care about others. Letitia's house, I mentioned earlier, you guys rock. Last week, you gave almost $10,000. Just kind of your pocket change to help this, this, this ministry of these women that are being trafficked. You set a tab- another chair at the table for them. But my posture towards God, my approach to God is impacted as well. And this pursuit of a relationship, it reveals and cultivates a high view of God. And a high view of God is something that prompts an absolute dependence on grace. I want you to bring that up. A high view of God is He is exalted. And I have no way of bridging the gap. You really think a few of these little piddly acts, if I do the right things, are going to be enough? 
It's an infinite gap, and it'll take me all eternity to bridge that gap, except Jesus has come, and He gave His life on the cross. Low view of God? Yeah, I deserve to be at this table because you know, let me tell you how I've been your one. You don't have many friends these days in this culture, but I'm a churchgoer and I do this and I do that. Uh, That's the gumball approach to this. I don't. The posture that Isaiah 57 that I read a minute ago is he was humble and contrite. And I come here and I come and say, Jesus, no. You don't know what I've done. You don't know my, you don't know my, my heart's posture. And he says, oh, yes, I do. But it's paid for. You're guilty, but it's paid for. He says, so come, 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 come sit down. He says, you're not comfortable yet, are you? No, because I'm having trouble believing the gospel. He says, believe it. I said, it sounds too good to be true. He says, that's why it's called the gospel. And one of the most religious people in the New Testament was Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Paul says, it's by grace that we're saved, not by works, lest any man or woman should boast. A high view of God is what cultivates grace. Grace is precious to me in this. If I could summarize those two columns and you were to say, uh, summarize them with one word, here are the two words I would use. Religiosity is due, and it's never enough. Relationship with Jesus, it's done. He did it. He says, come eat with me, come have a meal. You say, well, what happens in the meal? What kind of meal are there? What kind of a meal is it? There's so many kinds, but let me tell you the first meal. It's a meal that he instituted the night before he gave his life. He got the disciples together in an upstairs room. They were celebrating Passover, so there was some bread and there was some wine. And it's this meal that paves the way for all the others, because this is what he's done. We're going to have this meal together. I'm going to ask the worship team if they would come on out. And I want you and me to reflect on the words of Isaiah chapter 43. I want you to hear him. Hear what he says to you. Since you're precious and honored in my sight, And because I love you, I'll say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed, and who I've made. He says, my son, I made you for my glory. My daughter, 
I created you. I wired you. You're gifting. It's, it's the complete package of what I intended. But I created you for my glory, my son. All those idiosyncrasies that your friends kind of give you a hard time about, I think they're really cool because I made you for my glory. My daughter, I created you for me. I know your sin. Everybody's got it, but I, I paid for that to restore you because it, it pains me that you're not at the table with me. So would you meet me at the table? Forget the transactional stuff. That's the enemy. You guys ever noticed how much religion's out there? Would it surprise you to know that that's part of Satan's strategy to keep us from relating with him? It's why Jesus was so angry. Because people were falling for the counterfeit that's not life-giving. So right now, wherever you are in your journey, I'd like to ask you to maybe, if it's easier for you to concentrate, bow your head, close your eyes. But I want you to just hear his invitation. He's pulled up a chair. And he says, would you meet me at the table? For some of you, it's going to be the first time. Be quiet right now. Just for 60 seconds, listen to him.